0: Okay. Those might seem like odd um, papers to be writing for a Panpsychist, but I can explain that later. I, I was told never to start talks with apologies, but I think I have to apologise for the fact that I'm hungover and have a headache and may not be as sort of sharp or or entertaining as sometimes. So please bear with me. Um, okay. <coughs> so mirrors of the mind, and there are the there are the aforementioned mirrors of the mind there, up there in pictographical representation. Here's a, then here's a plan, an overview of what I'll do. Um, talk about the combination problem, I've got combination problems because I think there are a few concerns mixed in together with the combination problem and the way it's expressed different ways. I'll try to distinguish those uh, into three problems roughly. I'll then uh, underline two problematic assumptions which I think are driving the combination problem problems thing. Um, w- at least one of these has come up already, so um, it won't be news to you. I would try to reject the assumptions. I'll give you some argument for rejecting them, to the, the assumptions on which the probna- combination problem relies. And kind of following on from that, I'll, give you, I'll try to give you a model of phenomenal combination. Then there's a, an interlude, a conceptual case study, a case, an example um, meant to try to make what I've said so far plausible uh, in the concrete case, and I'll end up with trying to put the model of combination into action in, with a, how I think visual perception might work. I stress, this is work in progress, I'm hoping, that my hope for this talk is you guys can help me out, let me know whether this is even coherent and makes any sense, because it's stuff I've been thinking on, thinking about and I'm not quite sure if it works, so I need help, hopefully you can provide some of that, okay, <clears throat> so there's your structure, here we go, combination problems, so here's some quotes, here follow some quotes from various... Uh, more or less celebrated authorities, at least one of which we have in the room. We're, we're lucky to have. So, these, some of the, these will be familiar to you. I won't spend very long on them. This is James then. Uh, the private minds do not agglomerate into a higher compound mind, he says. Each remains in the sum what it always was. This is the famous quote about feelings. Take a hundred feelings, shuffle them, pack them as close together as you can, whatever that may mean. Still each remains the same feeling it always was, shut in its own skin, windowless, ignorant of what the other feelings are and mean. And then if the hundred feelings produced a hundred and first feeling, this hundred and first feeling would be a totally new fact. The hundred feelings might be a signal for its creation, but they would have no substantial identity with it. So something like you've got 100 feelings, and then maybe they, the 101st one pops into existence. That's his his model he's playing with for how phenomenal combination might arise. Uh, but he doesn't think there's any actual combination going on there. It just spits out 101st, and there's no identity there. His our very own Philip Goff, let us suppose that each of the billion ultimates that compose my brain is a subject of experience. It is unintelligible how, why the arrangement of these subjects in my brain should give rise to some new subject of experience. So notice the similarity here between James and Goff, you've got an assembly of things and then somehow an- another thing is spat out from that assembly. In, uh, James is pointing out that there's no integration there, there's no real combination. And Goff's pointing out that, well, he's sort of, why should that happen at all? Why should the assembly of things spit out a new one or a big one? Um, Why should there's no, it's unintelligible why the arrangement of these subjects should give rise to some new subject of experience over and above the subjects we already have. And here's another quote from Goff My having through introspection. A transparent understanding of the essential nature of my conscious experience. So that's something that a lot of people say we have, right? That when you introspect, you've got direct, transparent, immediate access to your consciousness. You, tell, you can tell exactly what it's like. That is, in sh- is sharply in tension with my conscious experience turning out to be quite different from how it appears. I.e. turning out to be constituted of the experiential being of billions of microsubjects of experience. Okay. Now you may or may not know this version. I call it the Block-Stoljar version. It c- kind of comes from a thought experiment that Ned Block mentions briefly in sh- Troubles with Functionalism. It's about so you got, for reasons known only to them, entirely aliens decide to devote the next few hundred years to creating out of their matter substance with the, with the chemical. Inf- oh, hold on, before I say. It. So imagine there are these really tiny aliens in some distant part of space, right? They're smaller than atoms. They're, they're, they're smaller than subatomic particles. That's the starting point. Okay, imagine there are these very, very tiny aliens. And they're conscious and everything. They're very much like us. It's just they're really, really small. So imagine that for a start. Now, for reasons known only to them, they decided to devote the next few hundred years to creating out of their matter substances that, with the chemical and physical characteristics of our elements, they build hordes of spaceships of different varieties, about the sizes of our electrons, protons and other elementary particles, and fly the ships in such a way as to mimic the behaviour of these elementary particles. The ships also contain generators to produce the type of radiation elementary particles give off. Each ship has a staff of experts on the nature of our elementary particles. They do this so as to produce huge, by our standards, masses of substances with the chemical and physical characteristics of oxygen, carbon and so on. So these strange aliens must be fixated on our part of the universe, decide to get together and build out of themselves and their spaceships these massive quantities of what we would recognise as our matter. Okay, and then what happens next? Well, we're doing some space exploration, so we head off to this region of space and set up colonies. We start breathing and growing food using this matter that is constituted by the aliens and their ships. Is all very weird. Now we're eating, so we're exchanging matter with the environment. After a few years of living there, we come to be composed of matter, composed in turn of these tiny aliens in their spaceships. So now the carbon composing us is made of little conscious aliens in their spaceships. You can see where this is going. S- says Daniel Stoljar, who's recruiting block against panpsychism in effect in his recent book, uh, to Ignorance and Imagination. This is a kind of panpsychism in operation. You've got conscious beings constituting another conscious being, us, one of us. But it's clear that, at least this is what Stoljar thinks, one, the consciousnesses of the aliens do not thereby combine into a single macro-consciousness. They may be composing the atoms that compose your body, but they're still separate in their ships, running around doing whatever they're doing. Their minds haven't merged together just by just by com- combining to form you or combining to form your brain. Secondly, you're being composed of these conscious elements. There's nothing to help explain the fact and nature of your consciousness. So this is a particularly vivid version of the combination problem, I think. These little aliens don't combine to a, s- to a group mind. OK. <coughs> so here's three, um, three prob- combination problems, if you like, that I think pop out of those quotes. One. Phenomenal combination is impossible in principle, i.e. it's conceptually and or metaphysically incoherent, that's one view, Uh, kind of what I guess Philip was trying to get at, and James as well, or it simply fails to produce a macro consciousness, so that's very evident in the James quote, Mm -hmm. put the hundred feelings together, why will it pop out a hundred and first, why would that happen? So there's an impossibility in principle claim. Two. Even were it possible, how could it work? What are the actual mechanics of combination? So there's a practical challenge to panpsychists to fill out the details of how combination could work. And, this, and Philip says something like this, without an account of the mechanics, we're in the same mysterious, mysterious position as materialist reductionists, i.e. we're forced to say, look, it just happens somehow, we don't really know, just as reductive physicalists have to say, you just get consciousness out of dead matter somehow, we don't know how. So that will mean panpsychism's got no explanatory advantage in that case. We've got a big kind of explanatory gap as well. So two is a pressing problem. Then there's three, which came out in Philip's last quote. Now, why, if in introspection, don't we detect phenomenal grain, i.e., the presence and quality of each phenomenal ultimate that composes our consciousness? So on the, on the, the combination, on the, on the, hy- the hypothesis that... Our, uh, our consciousness is, is, is the result of a combination of these elements. Why can't we detect their presence there? Because we're supposed to have direct revelatory access to the nature of our consciousness. That's the Strawson intuition. And if it were composite, this ought to be a phenomenally salient fact. So why don't we detect the ultimates? I guess that was Philip's challenge. If they're there, if it's composite, how come we can't tell? Your consciousness doesn't seem to be composed. It seems to be unitary. It seems to be one thing the three combination problems. Here are the problematic assumptions, I think, are underlying those. One, phenomenally qualitative things are themselves experiences or subjects. You saw James talking about minds combining, Philip talking about subjects combining. This is the kind of talk that runs through discussion of the combination problem. Un- this assumption underwrites Problems 1 and 3, so with regard to Problem 1, the impossibility and principle of combination, subjects cannot combine is the thought, each subject, I mean what it is to be a subject is to be distinct necessarily from the next one along, that's the intuition that this alien thought experiment makes vivid. They're separate people, why will? Putting them together to make a bra- one of our brains or something, merge their minds. It won't. Minds don't merge. Minds are. Minds have got lines around them. They can't blend into one another. So I think the the the, the assumption that that phenomenally quality things are subjects is doing a lot of work. It underwrites problem three as well. Um, since. So what was problem three? Let me remind myself. Why don't we detect the phenomenal grain, right? Why don't we detect phenomenal grain? That underwrites that problem as well. Because if they're subjects, since they can't combine, the distinct phenomenal status of each subject that composes ought to be manifest in introspection. If they can't combine because they're subjects, we ought to be able to kind of count them off in introspection. You ought to be able to see that your visual field is composed of little subjects having visual experiences or something like that. Okay, there's another assumption, B. Phenomenal combination is merely aggregative. Um, This is the notion, so an aggregate is just a mere lumping together of distinct elements, importantly, each of which remains distinct and unaffected by being aggregated. So um, think of a pile of bricks, right? Pile of bricks, the mass of the pile of bricks is an aggregate property. Each brick has its mass, you pile them together, you've got a an aggregate mass of the, of the pile, the entire weight of the pile, which is obviously just the sum of the individual weights. None of the bricks is affected or changed by this, by this combining. The masses of each one remain the same. Moreover, it doesn't matter which order you put the bricks in, the thing will still have the same mass, still be the same pile. So aggregation is just lumping together. And an assumption going on with a combination problem seems to be that that's the only way phenomenal elements could combine is just by being lumped together. Uh, James talking about shuffling feelings together, right? That's, that's that it's just aggregation. Now this underwrites problems one and two, uh, the incoherence in principle challenge and the how could we have in practice a mechanics of combination challenge. It underwrites problem one, because an aggregate of subjects is not and need not produce a new subject. That's again with the aliens, right? Get lots of subjects together, they're not going to pool because the subjects are individual things. Necessarily so. <clears throat> For problem two, since aggregation can't turn the trick, since aggregation we can see conceptually won't be enough to get us phenomenal combination, how could combination work? It's a, this is what produces the challenge. Give us a model then. Aggregation is the only one we can imagine doesn't work, so you tell us how it does work. <clears throat> now B, this assumption seems to follow from Assumption A, right? Subjects are inviolable, as in you can't violate them, you can't break their borders. Inviolable, ring-fenced individuals who cannot blend. Therefore, aggregation is the only mode of combination for phenomenal ultimates. If their subjects... The only way you're going to be able to combine them is by lumping them together. You're not going to be able to do anything more kind of intimate with them or blend them in some way. So, this is the assumption that's doing most of the work that their experiences or subjects in themselves. Are you with me so far? Okay, take that as a yes. So, here we go. We need to reject these assumptions and then we can start doing some combining. So, I want to start with assumption A. Phenomenally qualified things are themselves experiences or subjects. I want to deny this, and this will help us to blend them. So, here's some some preemptive heel digging. Being phenomenally qualified means just that: having phenomenal qualities. The ultimates we envisage are just whatever fundamental particles completed physics posits. So, I'm happy with quarks, leptons, and so on. All I'm saying is those things have got phenomenal properties. They have got qualia. They are qualitatively properties. So th- I, I do it with colours. this just find this helpful. It's, but it's really only a kind of a metaphor and analogy. But So say quarks are red, leptons are blue and so on. They're all different colours. Qualia, they've got qualia in that sense. They're coloured. They're phenomenally coloured. So this is not, I'm not alone in saying this madness. Um, Carothers and Schechter in, in the Galen Strawson collection on panpsychism, Although they're arguing against panpsychism, they say, why is it that panpsychists always think of it being subjects combining? If they just said it was phenomenally property thingies, everything would be much easier. So I, I'm just following their advice. Phenomenally property thingies, but not subjects. Peter Unger, in his book that's been mentioned, All the Power in the World, he's, he actually deals with colored particles, and that helps him with his thought experiments. And Michael Lockwood, as well, in Mind, Brain, and the Quantum, Talks about unperceived qualia. So I have some precedence for the madness. Okay. Their being phenomenally quality does not imply that they are subjects or experiences. Or even that they are experienced. Okay, this is the bit that's hard to swallow and that I'm gonna try to convince you it makes sense, and you have to tell me if it does or if it doesn't. So they've got phenomenal qualities, but they're not subjects or experiences or experienced. So you're not allowed to raise your hands obviously because it's my talk but somebody if they were to raise their hand they might say this every experience requires an experiencer isn't that is that what you want to say kind of thing right now it's what you read in the literature there can't be an experience without an experiencer but hands up if you subscribe to that don't be shy okay so at least half okay so I'm not going to take you on there I'll just say fine have your little have your experiences whatever so what I'm positing is not an experience it's an instance of phenomenal quality. A thing with qualia, but it's not an experience. Why? Because it's not an experience of anybody. So it's just a phenomenally quality thing. I'm going to try and make some sense of this idea. It's the kind of thing that could be experienced. A little red uh we've got little red quark could be experienced, were it part of a mind, but it's not part of a mind. So Lockwood says that qualia are the kinds of things that can disclose themselves to minds. So when you get in the right kind of relationship with them, you get their essence kind of displayed to you directly. That doesn't mean that their essence consists in being so displayed. Now further than this, I think the notion of a simple subject, e.g. an ultimate, is actually incoherent. So I don't know, Strawson thinks that Every, uh, every phenomenal, every ultimate, every you know, one of the smallest particles is phenomenally qualified, and they're all experiences as well. They're all subjects. And they're supposed to be simples. Well, I think this is incoherent. As in, simples as in they have no structure. Incoherent. Why? Because subjectivity is awareness of something. Intuitively, to be a subject is to be aware of something. And that requires structure. I'm just buying into the old-fashioned act-object act model of awareness. Awareness is an act, and it's directed upon an object. Well, an act is one thing, and an object of an act is another thing. So you need at least two things to get subjectivity going. Since a simple is only one thing, you can't get it going. A simple can't be experiencing itself, little, little blue uh, lepton, experiencing itself. That doesn't make any sense. It can be blue. But it doesn't have an angle on itself, it doesn't have a way of looking at itself, it doesn't <coughs> have the structure to do that. I so I mean being very, very crude, I can look at my own hand and enjoy it. Look, my left hand's better than my right, so that's why I'm using my left one. But that's because I'm structured. There's me, subject, bit here, being very crude where the brain is, and there's this part here, and one can be put in front of the other, being extremely crude here. Yeah. You can't do that if you're a simple you ain't got no bits you can move around, so that's the intuition. <coughs> a mind then, for me, a mind, and I mean by a mind, a subject or an experiencer as well, is, a pheno- is, a, is phenomenally qualitative elements, so qualia arranged into a cognitive structure. So remember, I think the qualia are just the particles, so you arrange those into a, something like a brain that can do nice interactions with the environment and processing of all kinds. And you've got a mind. I think that's how you get intentionality, but that's another story. Okay, I'm going to give you more detail on that when we get to the visual perception bit. Time is running on though, so i better go. So that's Assumption A. Now, I'll say a little bit more about... Uh, this was supposed to be... This was supposed to come up or not in all one go. Never mind. <coughs> um, I'll say a bit more about the notion of unperceived qualia. So I've tried to get rid of subjects... This is what I've done so far. And I've denied that the instances of phenomenal quality are themselves experiences. As I said, that needs structure. But you might say this, how can there be unperceived qualia? So forget subjects or whatever. But how could there be unperceived qualia? Sort of a Berkeley thought. So the reasoning seems natural, I concede. It goes something like this, the reasoning you might present against me. Qualia, phenomenal qualities seem to be essentially presentational. They feel a certain way, they present a certain feel to some subject, that's their nature. You think that qualia are feelings, feelings feel a certain way, they must feel a certain way to somebody, so they're essentially presentational. But this notion, that is the idea of essentially presentational items, that may actually be conceptually incoherent. And here I'm just ripping off an argument, I say adapting, I mean stealing, an argument from Foster sadly dead, uh, great British idealist from his 2000 book. He's got this argument against the idea of conventional sense data, i.e. Uh, phenomenal objects that exist in the mind and only exist insofar as they're experienced. So here's his argument against them. In what does the existence of a quale consist? So it can't derive its existence from being presented to subject S. Why? Because something cannot derive its existence from a fact about itself, it's got to exist first. It's no good saying the quality exists, it derives its existence from being presented to you, because if to be presented to you at all, it's got to antecedently exist. It can't get, get its existence from being presented to you unless it's there to be presented. So that's ruled out. What about this one? And I have to admit, these are two formulations Foster uses. And I can't say that I understand exactly the difference between them. But I put both of them in because he uses them. If you can help me tell me they are or are not distinct, that would be nice. But his second option is this. A a quale, or in his case a datum. but we're still sticking to quale, its existence precisely consists in the fact that it's presented to us at at time t. So the essence of the quale is to be presented to a subject at a certain time, and then he says something like this: No, unless its existence is logically possible outside of being presented, it cannot be. This is his phrase: be ontologically available for presentation at all. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a dif- if it's a different thought here, but. It's, it, it can't, its being can't consist in being presented to you because to be presented, you must have something to be presented. So it must, its, it's existence must be logically distinct from being presented. So here's me trying to pass what he's getting at here. So something like this Awareness of is awareness of something, I say. So there must be something existent to be aware of. Something onto which awareness can be directed, in the case of you experiencing a qualia. Hence, there must be something logically distinct from the act of awareness itself. So qualia must be logically capable of existing unperceived. You must be logically capable of existing unperceived. Otherwise, they couldn't be available to be in the attention of any subjects. They can't be in their own attentions, but they can't be subjects of their own awareness because they're not structured. So that's sketchy-ish, gut, intuition-based argument for unperceived qualia. Now we'll get on to assum- rejecting assumption B, and then I'll, s- then I'll start to flesh out a model of combination as I do this. So assumption B, if you remember, was that phenomenal combination is merely aggregative. It's just lumping together. Well, no. We've got rid of the assumption that phenomenal the ultimates are subjects, since they're not subjects but they're just phenomenal instances. They are no longer ring-fenced, f- ring inviolable individuals. They haven't got firm lines around them. And it's no accident that I've got paint up there being splidged and splodged together. This is the, what I think goes on with Qualia. It's an analogy or a metaphor, and I, I, I accept, but this is the model. You've got distinct patches of quality there, but they're being mixed together. So we can can therefore envisage closer combination and mere aggregation. We haven't got subjects to deal with. We've got stuff that can be mixed. Well, how does this help, somebody would say. Still a pile of phenomenal instances is a pile of phenomenal instances, each separate and distinct. So even if you've not got subjects, you've still got different qualia sitting around. How do you get them combined? This is the paint bit. We must envisage the phenomenal instances as blending together, or at least forming a relational structure in which each helps modify the quality of the next. So, Pierre Francesco has this nice example of um, you. I think it goes like this: you eat lemon ice cream, and you're enjoying that flavour, and then you drink a glass of water, and it kind of slightly modifies the flavour of the ice cream, but not very much. Alternatively, you eat the ice cream and you drink a cup of coffee. Well, this changes the flavor very much, the kind of nasty taste of bitter coffee in the background and the kind of pure, clean lemon flavor. We know that, that sort of, that, you, you know what I'm talking about there. So you ask, how do qualia combine? Well, that's how. We know exactly how. You've got there two experiential qualities. They're distinct, you can recognize each of them in individually, but they in some way, overlap, combine, blend into one another. They overlap at the edges. They affect one another. So they're in a relation, and they modify each other's quality. And that's a kind of phenomenal unity. We already know how it happens, is the point there. Or even more helpfully, we can envisage the following. So I've had this relational structure idea. So combination into a brain, I think, puts the ultimates in internal relations such that they mutually constrain one another's states. They affect each other. They become a whole, holistically determined. They thereby form a phenomenal lattice, as in a a, grid of instances, a a structure, like 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 the structure of a solid with molecules together, which faces external influences corporately. So we've got phenomenal pixels something like that, like the pixels in your TV. Or more than this, phenomenal paint splashes. That might be the most helpful one, because you can mix paint. So just as qualitative patches of paint can blend, so can qualia. I was going to go through this case study, but maybe I won't. Uh, Maybe I'll only say very quickly. Um, What I wanted to say here, there's um, this weird phenomenon of memory transplant, okay, I saw about on the TV the other day. So some heart transplant patients report getting the ta- aesthetic tastes, memories, uh, even some sens- apparently some sensations from the donor of the heart. There have been some very weird stories where, you know, somebody develops a taste for Mexican food having never been able to stomach it before, tracks down their donor uh, family and finds out that the donor was you know, big into Mexican food or they suddenly get into the gym having always been lazy and fat and one guy turns into this big sportsman aged 40 when he has his heart replaced and lo and behold tracks down the donor family and donor was a big sports guy. So some weird stories like that. Now you might think what's happening there helps us make sense of rejecting both the assumptions. You've got apparently conscious elements, these memories or tastes or sensations, they're not themselves subjects because they're, they're things that can be experienced by subjects and they can be transferred between people. So that breaks down the experiences must be subjects assumption. As for aggregation, you can see there that the if you think of this experience or this phenomenal unit, it gets kind of blended, it gets shipped into the new mind and blended in there somehow. Now I'm not saying that this really happens. All I'm saying is it conceptually makes some sense, in which case we can reject the assumption. So this is a conceptual exercise. But it's not essential to my argument if you reject this. So I'm happy to skip over it a bit. So here's the model in action, visual perception. So think of pixels in a TV set again. They're united in a lattice. Each unit can take on a quality as pixels they can be red or they can be blue or they can be green. I mean, in old-fashioned tellies anyway. Now, that suffices for their individuation. So there's this question about how do you individuate qualitative units? If this experience of, as of an itch then turns into the experience of a pain, has it lost its identity? This has been a, an issue that's come up. Um, I think not necessarily, because you, what you've got there is... a patch it's remember I think that qualia instances are physical things they 're the essences of particles so they 're locatable in space time they 've got space time coordinates perfectly happily you know insofar as any particle wave does it's located in space at least and it can be this quality or it can turn that to that quality it 's individuated by the fact that it even if it's in a lattice where so imagine a, a Phenomenal lattice, a uh, sort of pixel-like array where each pixel is red is phenomenally red. What you might say distinguishes, what individuates each pixel now? I want to have them blending together, but I want to have perhaps have them retaining their individuality. Well, each patch could be or could have been a different colour. Intuitively, if it were under different circumstances, so that suffices for its individuation for me. It's a certain coordinate of space time and it can take on this or that quality so it's not a problem i don't think that they can change their quality okay now the thought is like this this lattice is organized the the ultimates the qualia to be jointly responsive to a stimulus in the television The pixels are responsive to the electronic command of the TV set, which in turn is a translation of radio signals, which in turn are the translation of the light going into the camera. That's how the screen is a translation of what was in front of the camera and how you're watching what was in front of the camera, right? So, phenomenal pixels or paint splashes are able to pool their quality. So, they're more closely united than these discrete units, the pixels. (coughs) Nonetheless, again, they are individuated by this fact. Each one could, can or could take on a different quality. Now think of mirror pieces suspended in a lattice. So now we get very speculative. So a field of f- flat mirror pieces, strings attaching the pieces to one another. So I could be hang- it could be some nice ornament thing that you might hang in your house, right? hang them up here. And further strings tied out to external objects. For example, one such string is attached to a red apple. The apple pulls the mirror pieces into line. They turn to face it as a body. Okay. So they're then reflecting the redness of the apple together. There's a reflection of the apple in these fragments. Now, I th- that for me is a, this is a model of how visual perception goes on. This lattice, phenomenal elements, aligns, and the analogue of it reflecting the light is not reflectance, but the mirrors of the mind don't reflect. They take on the quality they face. So in my mental mirrors, as it were, it's not that they reflect redness. They turn red. They turn phenomenally red. They, as it were, echo the colour of the object in the environment. Now you've got a phenomenally conscious representation of a red apple. a kind of qualia mirror of it. So here's what the, f- the red lattice, take a further lattice, angled on the first, so this is another phenomenal field, if you like, which takes on its quality, so this one turns red in reflection of the apple, this further one is responsive to the quality of the first one, so this one also takes on a redness. Well, I think that what you've got there is a subject perceiving the apple. You've got a phenomenally conscious representation, and you've got a representation of that representation. So this is a phenomenal higher order thought theory of consciousness. I think that's what a conscious subject is. A phenomenal field representing a a further field that's responsive to the environment. I now realize how kind of weird that all was. Okay, thank that's it, thank you.